0: Good evening and welcome to First Say Chats by Dr. G. I am Dr. Dana Grandison, a physician in Barbados and your hostess for this evening. First Say Chats by Dr. G is a live podcast that provides listeners with a unique opportunity to not only hear complicated medical conditions explained, but also clarify any misunderstandings you may have about that condition. After all, a medically aware and educated patient is an empowered patient. And this evening, our episode is entitled, Our Children, Our Future, Their Health. And our guest this evening is none other than Professor Anne St. John. Dr. Margaret Anne St. John received her secondary school education at the Queen's College and is a graduate of the University of the West Indies Faculty of Medical Sciences at k Campus. She completed a residency training in pediatrics, Pediatric Ambulatory Fellowship at Kings County Downstate Medical Center, Brooklyn, New York, and was the first fellow in pediatric infectious diseases at the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto. In 1980, rejoined the staff at the Queen Elizabeth Hospital as a consultant, was head of department for a decade, and has contributed significantly to the development of the Department of Pediatrics for almost four decades. She retired from the Queen Elizabeth Hospital post in 2018 and was given the title of Honorary Consultant in Pediatrics in 2019. She also holds the title of Honorary Professor at the Faculty of Medical Sciences k Campus from 2010, has taught pediatric skills to an estimated 1,000 faculty med science graduates and residents pursuing their DM degree in pediatrics. She also serves as a local and intercampus campus examiner. She has presented and published greater than 150 peer reviewed articles and abstracts on pediatric infectious diseases. In an international journal review, reviewer, HIV, and has received multiple awards for her research. She was a BAM awardee and also a national honoree for service to pediatrics in 2016. She has served as a volunteer and medical advisor to Variety, the children's charity in Barbados for a number of terms. She has also served on other local children's charities and served for six years as a director of the Heart and Stroke Foundation. She is a founder, member, and consultant for the youth gym at Heart and Stroke Foundation Barbados and chief champion of childhood obesity prevention program and consultant of youth health with the Heart and Stroke Foundation of Barbados, pushing forward in the national effort. She also serves several professional and non-professional related organizations in in a voluntary capacity is the editor of the Barbados Association of Medical Examiner's uh, Practitioners, sorry, bulletin, and has served several terms as a member of the Privy Council of Barbados. In the past five years, her passion, energy, and research has focused on childhood obesity and non-communicable diseases, particularly childhood obesity prevention. Good evening and welcome Professor St. John. How are you doing? Dr. St. John, I'm just gonna ask you to join us at this time. You can call in and we will start our program. Professor, can you hear me? I can see you in the audience, but I'm not actually seeing you as a calling feature. Good evening, Professor. How are you doing?
1: I'm fine, thank you. And I thank, say thank you for inviting me to take part in this forum this evening, and thank you for the very kind introduction.
0: Thank you so much. So this evening, Professor, well, this month actually is Childhood uh, Obesity Awareness Month, and I thought it fit to wrap up this month with our presentation on childhood obesity. Um, So I wanted to go right in because we keep hearing this term, childhood obesity being tossed around, but really what defines an obese or overweight child? That
1: is very important because obesity and overweight are different in the eyes of the beholder. You may meet up with a parent who thinks their child is just a little big boned, or you may meet up with a parent who thinks the child is just too small. However, the World Health Organization does define obesity in an objective way, just to make sure that everybody's on the same page. It's defined as a disorder in which Excessive body fat has accumulated to such an extent as to adversely affect one's health. And the most widely accepted definition of obesity is arrived at uh, if you look at the person's weight in kilograms divided by their height in meters squared. Now, for, according to age, this number can vary, but for an adult, it should be less than 25. And there are curves which appear in the health passports of many countries, which allow the parent to be able to calculate uh, the body mass index from this formula. It also can be calculated by pounds and feet and inches, but I have used the metric system because countries are more and more becoming metric. So if you are looking at a child who is over the 85th percentile, this is what we say is overweight. And if we look at a child who is over the 95th percentile, this is what qualifies as obesity.
0: Okay, great. So we now have the building blocks of how we really define uh, what is an obese child. Now, I've seen several um, infographics as well as short little blurbs being posted into social media stating some very daunting statistics that we have here on the island. And it is stated that estimated one in three children in the primary school setting and secondary school setting would be classified as being overweight or obese. Can you lend some more clarity to that?
1: This is indeed so. And we have, um, over the years, last number of decades, because of a number of factors, we've found that there's an increased prevalence of overweight and obesity to the point where it's predicted that in the year 2030 half of the region's children are expected to be overweight or obese with all of its social and health implications. This is something which has come out through the World Health Organization, which has has drawn it to our attention that obesity in childhood is one of the most serious global challenges for the 21st century.
0: Wow, that is extremely daunting. Um, In turn, you you said that it can have long-term problems affiliated with a child being obese. Can you please tell me some of those problems that can occur? Because quite often you hear if a child is overweight or obese, parents may sometimes say, well, you know, when they start to go to school, and they start to run around, all of that fat is going to drop off. But why is it so important that we do not allow for our children to get into that category of being overweight, or worse yet, obese?
1: It's very important because the seeds of overweight, obesity, and non-communicable diseases, which includes overweight, obesity, asthma, high blood pressure, heart disease, and cancers. These are all planted in childhood. And by virtue of a lot of different factors, sometimes you do not develop the complications 30, 40 years later, or sometimes you do. There are many influential factors which come to the fore with overweight and obesity. There is um, environmental situations, biologic or genetic Changing lifestyles have had a role and physical activity. Those are the four main items which have played a significant role in um, the development of these non-communicable diseases. You asked about the effects on the body, and obesity and overweight can affect the majority of systems in the body. To start with, if you look at the brain, there is a condition called pseudotumor cerebri where you get a buildup in pressure in the brain. And this can cause effects like long-standing headaches in different individuals. Then there's a psychosocial effects of the conditions like poor self-esteem and being bullied, depression, eating disorders develop as the child gets older. Then there are effects on the lungs as well. Sleep apnea, asthma, exercise intolerance, there's even intestinal effects like gallstones and um, fatty liver developing. In the kidney, you can get hardening of different areas of the glomeruli. And looking at the musculoskeletal system, as you observe these um, students who are affected, slipped epiphysis, which is the head of the big bone in your hip area, then There's Blunt's disease where you get a very abnormal and increased bowing of the legs as you get older. There's also forearm fractures and flat feet. Now, more seriously are the heart effects and the endocrine effects where you get um, elevated fatty levels in the blood, high blood pressure, coagulation, which is clotting disorders, chronic inflammatory disease, dysfunction of the arteries and the lining. And finally, the endocrine system, type 2 diabetes, which is affecting a significant amount of our adults with precocious puberty coming on. Mm -hmm. There's polycystic ovarian syndrome, which many of the ladies are familiar with as this month has been in a focus, and malfunction or decreased function of the gonads. So all of those organ systems I have mentioned are ones where you have effects from childhood, obesity, and overweight.
0: Now, you spoke about the influential factors. And you said that some of these influential factors are biological and genetic, but then there has been a change in lifestyle and physical activity and environmental factors as well. Certainly, Can you yes. please break down exactly how they have played a part in actually driving this process?
1: Yes. Um, first of all, I would like to explain something uh, when you sure. say genetic. Yes. It's been shown scientifically that if you have a child born and both parents are of normal weight, there's a less than 7 Percent chance of the child being obese and overweight. So that's where the genetic comes in. Um, if you have one parent who's overweight, there's a 40% chance of the child being overweight, obese. And if you have two parents, before that child is one day old, it has a chance, 80% chance of being overweight and obese. So this certainly stands out as important statistics that you have to control the obesity from young and certainly during pregnancy, the weight gain of the mother and the final weight of the baby correlates significantly with the predictability of overweight and obesity later in life. So that's the genetic um, factors. Then there's um, changing lifestyles. Now the recommendation is at least one hour of moderate physical activity per day, regardless of your age. And certainly over a period of time, especially during the COVID period, March until now, we have noted that the restrictions on physical activity have been severe. Absolutely. People being locked, in their houses, not being able to go outside and play group sport. And group sport forms a large percentage of the activity in the schools. So if the children are unable to take part in their normal, everyday physical activity, what they have been doing is sitting on the tablets and the phones and the screen. And the amount of screen time has increased from two hours minimum, maximum recommended, up to five hours in some cases. So this has contributed to decreased physical activity as well.
0: Wow. Wow. So we, uh, in as much as the COVID period has allowed for family bonds to be enriched because they are spending a lot more time together, certainly uh, we fell short in terms of ensuring that we continue to be physically active during this period, even if it is within the house, um, doing exercise routines within the house. Uh,
1: That is so true, yes. Unfortunately.
0: Now, you also said that we also have factors such as changing lifestyles. Let's talk about that because quite often when I was growing up, uh, we didn't have too many soft drinks at school, accessible at school. And certainly mommy and daddy would pack lunch for you or would give you, ensure that you had a proper lunch. If they gave you money, they told you do not buy any junk food with your money. and. Certainly, on an evening, you always had something very solid and a well-balanced diet to eat. Let's speak about what has changed in terms of the patterns that we're seeing in terms of food consumption on the island, and also to speak about some of the concentrations and and um, the amount of sugar in some of our drinks. Now,
1: we have done quite a bit of research, um, paediatricians and healthcare. Um, E- health economists looking at what's happening of the impact of what is exactly resulting and what is causing the increase in obesity and overweight. There are some commonly identified contributing practices and these can be described simply as unhealthy choices which have resulted from cultural changes as we would say, It's been found that there is a lower than recommended level of exclusive breastfeeding So if the baby is born, usual 3.2 kilos, or about six pounds, and the mother is breastfeeding, or breast is best, promoted from the Baby Friendly Initiative during hospitalization, we find that people are not breastfeeding as much as they used to be in past time. This may be um, as a result of the fact that the mother has to return to work within six weeks or even three months of maternity leave is, not the one year in, as in some of the developed countries. So their inability to exclusively breastfeed, there are also social pressures from the next generation. Sometimes the mother would say, the mother's mother would say, well, baby's not getting enough from the breast, so you must give it the, the formula. And the formulas are denser, much denser. So this was what happens. The baby is now not under breastfeeding, and or reduce breastfeeding, and it's introduced to cow's milk or soy formula early in life. Mm-hmm. And another factor is that the baby who is breastfeeding regulates how much it takes. When its stomach is full, that's fine, and it will stop drinking. However, if you are measuring the milk in a bottle, and you read on the package as a mother, they say four ounces for three months, there is something in there to say, my baby must drink four ounces, so the baby is forced um, to feed, that so it must consume, whereas if it's breastfeeding, it will regulate the amount it takes normally.
0: Absolutely. That's
1: one of the things, breastfeeding playing a significant role. Then we get the premature introduction of solids before the age of six months, where parents and um, care providers interpret the baby's crying that it's hungry. So it cries many times a day. It's a social behavior. The baby cries, it may be wet, or it may be wanting to be turned over. It may have uh, soiled its nappy. And it's interpreted that it's hungry. So every time the baby cries, especially for new parents, it must be fed. And then they begin to think, well, maybe it needs something more than milk. So they want to introduce solids. And so the policy has been, in recent years, is, Do not give any solids, like cereal or food, before six months, because the baby can grow quite well on milk. A third factor contributing is unwise feeding practices. Um, Offerings of inadequate substitute beverages. So if the little child is about two and the parent goes out somewhere and the child is hungry, wants something, They punch into a machine and pull out a carbonated drink or one of the juice drinks instead of giving it water if it's thirsty. So changes in what they're offering. Excessive intake of sugar sweetened beverages, it has been alarming. Um, Statistics reveal that we consume three times as much of sugar sweetened beverages as the average world Uh, does in other countries. This is a study which was done by World Health Organization. We also consume high salt foods um, and snacks, which are calorie dense, poor nutritional value, but they're calorie dense like chips. You notice that when parents are around like in clinics, I see them on the road, in the bus, the parent has a package of some kind of chips, which are high in salt, and they don't have much nutrition in them. So that's another factor. There's also a disregard or a lack of knowledge, I think, of the fact that you should have no more than um, 60 spoons of sugar per day. And in total, this is 24 grams. So you can imagine um, if you're taking one of those carbonated drinks or one of the um, sugar juice drinks, they contain something like 80 spoons of sugar alone in that small pack. And in some days, some of the students are thirsty, they will drink two or three of those. So they're way past their sugar.
2: Right. Another,
1: another nutritional factor is the lack of adequate intake of fruit and vegetables. One often hears that um, these things are so expensive. However, within our community and across the Caribbean too. Choices are important to consume what is seasonal and what is reasonable for you to take. you find that the plate uh, survey was done by the Healthy Caribbean Coalition last year looking at a student population survey and they noted that 18.5% of students ate fast food times three to four per week. And looking at the plate, it was the color brown and white, meaning it contained starch or bread and meat. There was no vegetable visible. Then 73.3% reported drinking at least one or more carbonated drinks per day. And 15% of these students had no vegetables or fruits in the past month. So these are the implications of what the diet is like. And the last very important factor in contributing to obesity and overweight is the excessive portions consumed don't correspond to age. If I may digress a bit, the size of the stomach is estimated. If you average, if you take your fist and put it together just in a clench, that is the size of the stomach. The stomach is uh, comprising muscle and it stretches. So if you pour into it two or three glasses, it will distend like the balloon and then over an hour or two, it will go back to the size. But if you're taking excessive portions over years, your stomach muscle will stretch and it does not return to its normal tone. So I speak with the parents and explain to them, think of little Mary's hand at three, put up her hand and look at the size of her hand, which is clenched. That's the size of her stomach. And look at what you put on the plate and you expect her to eat every last spoon. So out of, out of um, lack of information, lacking information and knowledge about the size of the stomach and the excessive consumption of portions which are put on the plate, they also play a significant role.
0: Certainly. I want to take a deeper look into food in a bit. But something that struck me was the fact that you spoke about the premature introduction of solids before six months. Now, quite often, parents, especially first-time parents, get very, very wary when they hear their newborn or very young baby, less than six months, crying. And they think, yes, I need to feed the baby more or I need to start cereal. What is the danger with starting that food so early from a from a gastrointestinal standpoint? Because a lot of people don't think there's any harm in doing that. But can you please just share with us the danger of really starting that food so early?
1: Very early. Cereal and solids. I mean, sometimes people want to feed the child with potato and carrots and things at a very early age. Well, one of the things one can... Promote is the development of food allergies, promoting, giving them things the which their intestine is not ready to digest. That is why milk is given and cow's milk is similar, this more similar milk to breast milk. It varies a little bit in the amount of fat and the carbohydrate in it. So cow's milk and failing cow's milk, if you are allergic, if the baby's allergic, then soy. But I need to put in a word, soy is not the first choice after cow's milk because soy does not contain some of the nutrients which are required that are in the cow's milk. So given the cereal, you're loading up the child with heavy solute and this is just promoting more and more starch in, in the system and this is not the way which the child's body works, the infant's body works. So what we try to do is just hold off on the solids until about six months. And then introduction of solids is far wiser, nutrition for the infant.
0: Thank you so much because I think sometimes that uh, we are not totally aware of the danger that we may be actually causing to that very young baby by introducing food at such a young age. You also spoke about the inadequate intake of fruits and vegetables and really the, the plate looking quite incorrectly. Can you please break down how the plate should actually look? This is something that I constantly, um, when I'm counseling patients, I have to remind them over and over again the importance of how your plate should look.
1: Yes, I would like to s- explain. There is something which is called the healthy plate planner. And this plate, a picture of this plate can be sourced uh, through Barbados Nutrition, um, Nutrition Center. It's also available. Um, I would like to be able to share it. Um, Absolutely. I don't know if you'll be able to share that um, with, with those who are here. But sure. the plate, the principle of the healthy plate is that a plate is either nine inches on the outer rim or it's seven inches on the inner rim. And the principle being that half of the plate should consist of fruit and vegetables. And one quarter of the plate, starch, and the other quarter, protein. And so the plate for the children is usually the seven-inch plate. And I'm saying, when I say children, I mean somebody who is over the age of five. And the nine-inch plate is for somebody who's over the age of 10. And if this rule of thumb is, is adhered to, One would find that the child has a balanced meal and not likely to be planting the seeds of overweight and obesity. What happens in practice, especially in our community, is that the plate looks brown and white. It has a lot of starch in it, meaning it's the rice, the pasta, the potato, the yam, and there's the brown section would be the meat of some kind. And then there's no vegetable on the plate and this is particularly an issue in canteens the school canteens where surveys have been done by the nutrition center and i know a national nutrition policy for schools is presently being formulated by the ministry of education in conjunction with health and nutrition because canteens serving just meat and rice or meat and pasta and no vegetables. In fact, some of the can'ties charge extra for the vegetables.
0: Absolutely, which is crazy.
1: A plate should be a balanced meal. Um, Looking at what's on the um, vegetable section, there's a choice. Parents will say the child doesn't like vegetables. But I always say, now what are they seeing in the household? Are they seeing an example of the parents having a balanced meal as well? If the father or mother's plate does not have vegetables on it, then little Johnny is quite quick to realize, well, I don't need to have vegetables too. And there's a wide range. um, For example, there's cucumber, which is like 50 cents to a dollar per pound. Now there's pumpkin. Um, There's certainly beans, uh, tomatoes, for example. And they're almost always available. Now, if... Some of the principles of the healthy plate and meal include water, water with the meal. And if the child is tending to start to increase in weight, give it a glass of water right before the meal. And this tends to fill the stomach in part. Another principle is no second helpings, And if they really are still hungry from what you give them, they can have some more vegetables. But do not give any more starch and do not give any more meat. If they like to drink milk, certainly two percent milk or one percent milk is recommended and for heaven's sakes do not include any carbonated drinks or juice drinks for them. An issue is that the more of these high sugar drinks they have, the more they wish. It's like some kind of a addiction, this sweet surge, these surges there. Um, after you drink something which is very sweet you want more and more and more so this is something to remind parents and care providers about
0: certainly we have a question here from our audience um, lew7003 and she asks do you believe children should have no introduction to added sugar at less than a year
1: Yes, I do believe that. In fact, in training in pediatrics, we are taught: do not taste the child's meals, do not add any sugar, do not add any salt, and that's not only under on year, That is, don't add any and don't bring it to the table, right. because if it's at the table and the parent, the child sees the parent shaking the salt shaker, they will start to do it as well. And the baby foods: if you taste the baby foods, which are commercially made they don't have any sugar and salt in them. So we say to the parents, cook the food, crush the food, feed the baby the food, do not taste it because you are now going to impose your taste, your palate on what the child should take. And this is how they cultivate an early dependency or liking for salt and sugar. And to explain something further, in our race, which is a black race, our kidneys are unable to cope with the high salt, and we get diseases, high blood pressure, where it's very difficult to control, versus the Caucasians, who get blood pressure, but it's not as difficult to control, because our kidneys do not tolerate salt, high salt in the diet. So that's why we should, from an early age, try to avoid adding salt to what we have.
0: Okay. Okay. Great. So you, I, I actually posted a link with the My Plate Planner so that persons, if they wanted to have a look at the plate, they certainly can. Uh, in terms of fruits and vegetables, is there any way that you should or should not prepare the fruits and vegetables on the plate? Um, quite often, we are concerned about the actual nutritional benefit If, for instance, we steam the vegetables until they're floppy, um, is there any particular recommendation that you would give persons regarding how they should consume their fruits and vegetables?
1: Yes, the best way to have vegetables is raw. However, some are not as easy to consume. For example, carrots, which are hard. So steaming the vegetables is recommended, but boiling them in water. You boil out all of the vitamins and all the nutrition, and then what you're left with would have to be soup to get any nutrition out of it. And the vegetables have lost their, their um, nutritional value for the most part. So slightly crunchy vegetables is what is thought to be the best way. Um, you can also have barbecue vegetables and you can have them baked as well. Oh, great. So there are lots of different ways besides boiling them, which um, is not the best way to present them.
0: Certainly. Um, Professor, you, you spoke about some of the uh, non-communicable diseases that we have a challenge with here on the island. Can you give us a bit more detail about how, how bad is the problem of diabetes and hypertension in Barbados in the adult population? Because if we are Uh, not careful with what we allow our children to intake and the exercise that they should have, certainly they can go on to develop hypertension and diabetes. So how bad a problem do we really have in Barbados?
1: Barbados is rated as the diabetes capital of the world. I have heard it mentioned. Not being an adult physician, They really can't give you fully accurate figures. However, it is known that once you've reached the age of 40, especially in women, more than men, there is almost a 40% prevalence of diabetes, type 2 diabetes and elevated blood pressure, hypertension in women in Barbados. And in men, it is not as large a percentage affected, but it's also at an alarming figure so looking at that that's why we're trying to prevent the seeds being planted in the young child as they get older because if we don't try to move away from this we will all be on medication for diabetes and high blood pressure by the age of 40 and what is more concerning is that people don't feel any pain with elevated blood pressure nor type 2 diabetes so they may be just having their regular daily activities. And then one day it's discovered, oh, their toe starts to turn a little bit purple at the tip. And when they go in to see the doctor, they discover that they've had type 2 diabetes and also that their blood pressure is elevated without any symptom. And that is one of the most dangerous situations related to these two non-communicable diseases that they don't present with any pain. Because if something is painful, you'll go to the doctor soon. So screening, screening from an early age and awareness and taking the necessary measures by nutrition and physical activity are preventative and recommended to combat these conditions.
0: Now, you have the Heart and Stroke Foundation of Barbados Ute Gym. Can you tell us a bit about that, certainly?
1: Yes, our youth gym was established four or five years ago, and one of the founding members. And the reason this was established came out of the observation that the one in three children in Barbados were overweight and obese, and a number of children were referred. At that time, I was on staff at the Queen Elizabeth Hospital as a consultant in the Department of Pediatrics. So students were, we sent out some information to say we're starting this obesity clinic on a Monday. And um, what uh, polyclinics and general doctors in the community were invited to send, refer the students who were fit in this category for an evaluation. And we would do their blood tests and look at their thyroid gland, and make sure that wasn't um, underactive and cholesterol. Do their body mass index and then they will be referred by prescription it's prescription exercise by prescription to the u gym now the u gym at the heart and stroke foundation operates on a saturday people can be enrolled either referred by the doctor the clinic by the parent or by the school and we have complete a form application form the gym is divided into Uh, Students from the age of eight, those are the youngest that we would take, although we do have two or three seven-year-olds, eight to 18. And the classes are from eight to nine to 10 to 11. So we have three age groups which are seen. There are professional pediatric exercise trainers, and we have a program coordinator who is a nurse trained in cardio fitness. And what we have is that the Heart and Stroke Foundation has kindly allowed their gym, which is used for cardiac rehab during the week, to be vacant on Saturdays for these students to be using the machines. They mm-hmm. go on to um, the treadmills for a period of time and they have specific exercises which they do supervised by the trainers. Then they go outside into the area of the Yard and the driveways where there are no cars which are coming in, and they do ball exercises and running fitness. So, we had in Toho, we have an enrollment of a hundred students now, and we have a, a small waiting list. Pleasing, this is pleasing to have a waiting list or something like this. Absolutely, there is a lack of awareness of uh, parents and uh, care providers, even schools, that students are in need of this added activity um, in their lives. We have an issue where exercise has become, PE has become a competitive um, subject. And certainly those students who are overweight and obese and are not able to win the 100 meters or win the swimming competition are left behind. And too many of them are allowed to supply an excuse that they can't play games. Absolutely. They won't want to play games or they are not able to play games. This should not be an acceptable excuse in our community and schools that students cannot play games unless they're not at school today because they're ill.
0: I see we have another question here before I go on to talk about some of our local research that has been done. Um, We have a question again from Ellie. Good question. Taxing sugar sweetened beverages doesn't seem to have deterred children from drinking them. Any thoughts about what more can be done?
1: Yes, we, um, the first measure was recommendation of tax. And this was about, must be five years ago, or six now. Um, looking at taxing, and at that time, the administration, which was governing um, Barbados, did implement a 10% tax, sugar, sweet and drink tax. However, in contrast, across the Atlantic in the UK, they had on a 40% tax. And they did note um, in surveys that there was a decreased purchase, certainly, and presumably this is a decreased consumption in sugar, sweetened beverages. I would refer back to the tax on tobacco. Now, many, many years ago, when lung cancer was very prevalent, there was a move to tax cigarettes. And it's been shown this is one intervention in public health which has been extremely successful. Putting a tax on cigarettes contributed directly to a decrease in cigarette smoking and also lung cancer. So we, those of us who are lobbying um, Coalition Against Childhood Obesity are still pushing for the tax on sugar sweetened beverages to be increased. We have been told by the since the government changed, that they're not interested now in taxing people more, but we're still pushing for this to happen and hoping that the tax will be increased. There was a study which was published about three years ago, and a researcher here at the um, Sir George Allen Centre did some research to show that after the 10% levy was put on Sweden beverages, that the wholesalers noted a decrease in purchase of the beverages. So it did work to some extent.
0: Good. And that's important because the sugar sweetened beverages um, do play a major role. A lot of empty calories, essentially, certainly more than what we would want to intake in a day. And, And that is not just from the sweetened beverage, because you're still gonna have some starch on your plate. You're probably gonna have two other meals at the very least. Um, so by the time you have consumed your sweet soft drink, you are essentially over your limit for the day. Um, you started to speak about some of the research that was done and I wanted you to continue in that vein um, to tell us about what were some of the uh, thoughts among parents in terms of actually creating a healthy school food environment?
1: Yes. The Heart and Stroke Foundation Barbados commissioned a cadres poll back in. The results were um, published December 2018. And looking at about six different parameters, it was a scientifically um, performed study selecting parents. And it Some of the findings I will share included that 88% of parents were in favor of maintaining healthy school meal nutrition standards because they were convinced that the school meal standards is not adequate right now. And 72% um, recommended, and they were of the opinion that there should be a restriction of unhealthy foods and beverages sales within the schools. This This is is a yes
0: pardon me not to cut you off this is a complete restriction that they were in favor of
1: yes absolutely unhealthy food and beverage oh, great. sales within the schools and 73 percent thought that there should be a restriction of unhealthy food and beverage advertising which plays Very good. a major role the marketing the subtle marketing for example you find um book covers being supplied by commercial companies that sell food and beverages and sports events like the BSAC and Knapsack being sponsored by an energy drink um, wholesaler because they then give the drinks to the students uh, for on sports day. So if you keep seeing something in front of you, you sort of become brainwashed and you sort of see it and you want it. And those high energy drinks, as I said before, give you a sugar surge and you want more. Now, something, other findings of this study, um, Polling parents, 93% of parents definitely wanted clean drinking water within the schools. They didn't want to see these sugar sweetened beverages anymore. They wanted coolers. They wanted water itself being sold within the schools. And... um, 42% were in favor of restricting unhealthy food and beverage companies sponsoring events at the schools and the marketing within the 100 meters of schools. So you can see that parents are extremely vocal in their opinions as to what should be done for getting things better than they are right now in the school environment.
0: And and that's important that we actually have buy-in from parents because... When children leave school on a day, they are predominantly at home with their parents. And, and certainly if we are getting healthy environments being set up at school, um, that's half of the battle because they're there, they're there for quite a bit during the day. And then if we have a healthy environment set up at home, that actually helps significantly reduce the incidence of overbe- ch- children becoming overweight and obese. Um, we all, you also uh, had um, another program called the Model Schools Project. Can you tell me a bit about that?
1: Yes, the Model Schools concept was to invite a number of schools to participate in a pilot project from, this was about a year and a half ago, for childhood obesity prevention. And the Heart and Stroke Foundation was sponsoring, along with some donors who gave some funds, to look to see what could be done in a pilot project. Now, um, invitations were sent out to schools. There are about 70 primary schools and about 23 secondary schools and government secondary schools. And we also invited private schools. So schools were accepted on a first come, first basis. In other words, who accepted first then became the six model schools. There are four secondary schools and two primary schools, one private. And approach was made to the principals to sign onto a memorandum of understanding. And these principals were very amenable. They agreed that we have to do something about childhood obesity. So banning the sale and marketing of sugary carbonated drinks and restriction of the sale of other sugary drinks, such as box juices. So the study, um, the project progressed, and the model school principle was to support policy implementation by the administration. Now it's been found that a long time people have been talking and trying to invite and persuade people, but you must have policy implementation and legislation to follow, otherwise you will not get cooperation and make progress. There was a sensitization of principals and teachers, education of parents at the schools, ongoing vendor education and training by a nutrition team, meaning that you don't want to ban vendors at the school. You want to have vendors, but have them have nutritious things on their tray instead of selling high-salt, high-sugar snacks. They sold something different like apples and grapes instead of potato crisps and potato chips and sugar cakes, and reaching out in educational activities also to educate the students. So the main principles were switch what you're doing. That was called the switch up campaign to restrict beverages within the schools that were high in sugar, which called for a major change in the attitude towards sugar, to build out health clubs in each of the schools, which in education on fun activities, indoor and outdoors, and public education to conduct sensitization activities with parents, teachers, school vendors, and students. So that was the principle of the model school concept. And it has certainly moved quite a a way, um, a long way from where we started. And we're very pleased to say that uh, some implementation education where they had the drink machines where they used to be filled with sugar drinks and um, carbonated drinks that they had water on two levels and low calorie drinks, low sugar drinks. We also educated the vendors and the families and the students how to mix a healthy drink. Instead of putting three spoons of sugar into one glass of lemonade, just one glass, of one spoon of sugar in a glass, or even just having the lemon and water absolutely. instead of having a flavor because sometimes they want the sugar because they say it's bitter so other measures included looking at alternatives to sugar sweetened beverages water with some lime water with apple um, water with a little orange in it this gives a flavor if you don't like plain water, coconut water and that industry is certainly increasing as I notice on weekends but Coconut water is a healthy drink. And reading nutrition labels, when you go into the supermarket, look and see on the back of it how much sugar, how much salt, and it should be less than 10. Um, If you have less than 10%, less than 10 grams, then that's a healthier choice because you will see several potato crisps, you will see several plantain and banana chips. You need to be able to know which one is the healthiest one to take.
0: Thank you. We have a a question here. The statistics shared earlier were for Barbados only. Yes, they seem a bit daunting. Um, But yes, unfortunately, that is is currently where we are in Barbados. Um, Professor, what do you like
1: to trend, Our trend is not different. Um, I've been um, certainly the Caribbean Health Research Meeting where they presented papers on obesity and overweight in children. And a few years ago, we certainly had the same one in three prevalence, Tortola, there was um, Antigua, and then there was Bahamas, same thing. And in fact, it's estimated that in Jamaica, they're looking at one in two children is wow. said overweight. So it's, it's a frightening, a staggering statistic, and we have got to keep going to the plow on this kind of situation. Because Certain. we can't afford it. Our health budget has escalated. Our national purse has escalated because we are now having to treat so many conditions of non-communicable diseases, bypass surgery, heart attacks, when 50 years ago these were not things which would be reasons for admission to the hospital in the proportions as they are now. Certainly.
0: We have another question here. When training these athletes, the coaches and schools need to include a nutritionist who would introduce healthy eating and should also include, well, this is a comment, more so include the parents. I completely agree with you on that, to be quite honest. And we have another comment, another question here. Many parents say the child won't eat this or the child won't eat that, usually healthy foods. How should parents deal with strong-willed children at mealtime? Is it really the strong will child or is it the parent who does not want to invest the additional effort?
1: Well, it's a combination of both. However, what is important is what you learn as a child. You grow up and you're a man and it's already instilled. When children are being fed meals, when they're under a year, they eat everything because they're dependent on what the parent gives them. Now they start to notice the likes and dislikes of those around them at the table. I always say, make sure the child's plate is balanced. It has some starch, it has some protein, it has vegetables. And just try to mix the vegetable in with the carbohydrate. Try to flavor it, for example. Do it in a different way, but not to have them have an alternate. Now, some parents, especially new parents, is the first child. The child was, say, at two years old, I don't like that. And the child wants, they ask them, what do you want? I mean, this really is not recommended because the child, if the child says it wants rum, some (laughs) monkey, are they going to give it monkey?
0: Absolutely.
1: You you have to have (laughs) some kind of advice. And it's important to solicit advice. Call the pediatrician, call the doctor to ask, you're having challenges with your child and eating. What would you suggest, because a little bit of experience and advice can go a long way. Another reason why the child doesn't want what the parent is giving, because the child's stomach is full. Many children after school and afternoons, when they're collected, they're really hungry at about 2.30, and the parent will stop at a shop or they'll have something for them. They eat some potato crisps or they have apple or something. So when they get home at five o'clock, they're not hungry because their stomach is still full. And then there's a fight between the parent because then maybe granny has cooked dinner and she wants them to eat everything. And some parents are so frustrated, they sit the child down and make them eat everything they think they should. It becomes a psychological warfare between the parent and the child about eating. And no child dies from starvation around here. No child will die from starvation. So I suggest just seek some advice from someone. Don't wait until the child is six and seven and already ordering you to stop at the fast smooth place down the road to buy. And you think you're obliged because he will die if he doesn't have a box or whatever.
0: Certainly, so. which is, a, a, I think, a, a trap that sometimes parents fall into where, The child asks for the fast food and they may start a few tears and then the parent feels very guilty and they stop. And what initially started off as fast food, um, as a treat, once every blue moon becomes fast food every evening. Yes. You Um, know?
1: Parents um, use it to manipulate. If you don't do this, I won't take you to wherever to get whatever. That's the thing about it. You never children with food because it comes back to haunt you.
0: <laughs> we have another question here. How healthy is artificial sugar like Splenda?
1: That is indicated for just the indications that it says, diabetes. But generally speaking, you should not, in fact, one of those pills contains a lot of sugar, but it's a substitute. So what you want to do is try to reduce your addiction for the sugar. And over the years, we've had an agreement in National Communicable Diseases and cutting down the amount of salt and sugar in the bread. You may not notice it, but they're gradually cutting down the amount of content there.
0: Which is good. Um, we have, you spoke about reading nutritional labels, and I wanted you to, before we wrap up, because we have literally two more minutes, um, tell us about how sugar can be disguised on those labels. Because I, I, th- I don't think that persons are always aware um, that the sugar is there because they don't see sugar.
1: Sugar and cer- certainly the biggest one is corn syrup solids. If you go tomorrow, if you're at home, you have any of those pet drinks, those um, little juice drinks, turn it around and read and you'll see first thing, corn syrup, you see water. Flavoring, corn syrup, solids. So that is a complex sugar which is broken down into simple sugar. It doesn't say sugar as such. Because when you see sugar written, it's usually cane sugar or sucrose. But corn syrup, solids is a huge portion of the amount of carbohydrate in the drinks.
0: Sure. Now, Professor, in the last minute, Do you have any takeaways that you can give us before we sign out tonight?
1: Certainly. I have five main things I would like to share. Balance what students eat and do. Um, Ensure they have at least one hour of adequate moderate exercise per day. Restriction of screen time to two hours. And adequate portions of food on their plate. Read labels. Looking for less than 10% of sugar and fat content. Choose healthy, low-salt snacks, such as fruits, vegetables, or chips alternatives. And look for lower-calorie drinks. Replace your sugar-sweetened beverages with water. That is very important. Water is very, very important. Favourite say. But she drinks water, I said, instead of, don't buy them. If you don't have them in your cupboard, then they won't buy them. Um, they won't be able to treat them. And at school, the schools are certainly going, when the nutrition policy is implemented, the schools are not going to have these sugar sweetened drinks available either.
0: Great. And um, I'm really happy that you brought up as the last as a point early in the, the show, to use fruits and vegetables that are in season and I have placed uh, a few links within the actual chat um, for some of the local farms in Barbados where you can get fruits and vegetables very 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 reasonable because you're buying directly from the farm. Mahine Country Farm, the Produce Box, some of them even deliver like the Produce Box, Vegco Farm Shop and certainly we also have Green Dreams Farm in Barbados. Um, These are some of the A few of the farms that you can find on Instagram or on the internet, certainly where you can access healthy foods at reasonable cost. Because remember, our children are our future, but it's their health. And I want to say thank you so much. Professor St. John for coming on the show this evening and giving us all of the wisdom or some of the wisdom that you have, because you have a wealth of knowledge uh, behind you. I also wanted to say thank you very much to our listeners who have participated in the message blog, asking your questions. And once again, I encourage all of you out there to follow us on Podbean and Anchor and join us next week on First Aid Chats by Dr. G closing the gap. Thank you so much, Professor.
1: Thank you. It's been a pleasure being here.
0: Thank you.